Hey there, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast we got going over here at Pivotal. It's called That Moment. Don't get confused like I was initially. It's not the moment. It's called That Moment. That Moment explores the pivot that changes everything, moments that open doors for discovery and growth, but also brings the looming possibility of failure. Each show features different leaders and innovators sharing their stories and taking risks in business life. It's, you know, classic Pivotal stories. Also, it's fancy with all the crossfading music and optimized editing. It's really some good pro stuff. So if you're interested in those kind of stories about how people are wangling their way through all this uh, digital transformation, DevOps, cloud native stuff, go subscribe to That Moment wherever you get your podcast. But you know, for your weekly dose of unprofessional old school podcast rambling, let's get on with the show. So do you, uh, in your household, it's well established, you got lots of rain slickers, probably uh, hiking boots, but, but do you have a juicer? I don't. No juicer. I, I haven't really totally embraced the Pacific Northwest yet. Thing. I need to make my own juices mm. and uh, whatever avocado spreads, things like that. Oh, yeah. Well, well, we got to watch out with those avocado spreads. You might not be able to afford a mortgage. That's what I've read. <laughs> Thorough analysis from down under. Yeah, are you uh, a juicer? Well, no, but I was at my mother's this past weekend, and uh, she has one of these gigantic constructs. I, I, I even I shudder to think how much it costs, like a big silver thing. It's a wonderfully crafted machine. Uh, I forget the name of the brand or whatever. But uh, so, so I was there uh, uh, on Sunday morning which is yesterday for us, I went and bought like a bunch of, uh, you know, carrots and fruit and even kale all in. I also bought probably like three pounds of chicken. It was only $26 and I bought like organic did stuff. You, did so you put stuff, the chicken in cheap. there? Well, I did ask my mom if she had ever juiced meat, yeah. but I didn't experiment with that. I, she also has one of those Traeger grills. So that's where I put the chicken. To, to kind okay. of smoke it. I mean, if you, I still need to experiment. Yeah, if you were pioneering more. a chicken smoothie, I mean, I think that was going to warrant yeah. some discussion here. Yeah, well, you know, there's only so much innovation I can do every <laughs> year, and uh, I, I, I don't, I don't want to push the boundaries. But the, this is it, it just, it's just this phenomenal thing. This juicer, you just like, uh, you just like put a bag of carrots in there, and you got carrot juice. It's, I don't know. I, I of course, my wife uh, Kim used to be a big juicer person, and uh, had had a juicer. So I, I asked her. I was rambling through a question and I was like, all right, here's what I'm really asking. Is a juicer the kind of thing that you get and you use for like a month and then it's just in the way, i.e. you never use it? And she also short-circuited the answer and said, we're not going to get a juicer. So there you go. <laughs> It'll sit right next to the bread maker you have in the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you've already got that situation with, uh, with you know, at least under our cabinets, right? Like there's, I think there's a food dehydrator underneath there. And, uh, <laughs> we got, we got a, we got a full on Cuisinart. We got the mini Cuisinart. And then, uh, we have one of those, um, what were they? They're popular a couple of years ago, bullets or something like that. Ninja bullets. I don't know what they are. And then, and then we also have, I bought this, my wife likes pickling. So I bought her this Japanese pickling Tupperware thing, which I think she's forgotten about. I need to get that out and, and pickle. Things. That's awesome. Yeah, making nice. beef jerky and pickles. It's a uh, it's a party at yeah. your house. But you know, you know, not unlike buying a private juicer. There's been a lot of private cloud news recently. There has well a lot. I don't know. There's a lot in your list, there and and I'm I I I actually was uh, on my other uh, podcast, Software Defined Talk. We were talking about uh, a couple episodes back, like what it would look like if if Amazon had a private cloud. And many people, including my co-host, reminded me that Amazon does have that snowball thing. Uh, which, you know, I had thought that it was like a big semi truck, but I saw another article from maybe last year that there was actually kind of like a, a desktop sized device. Maybe, I don't know if it's a rack or whatever that, uh, maybe was something else. And 
I remember reading through that article, and it's basically uh, you probably you know you're more of a, a details person than I am. You probably remember the details, but it you know basically has like a terabyte of storage and like probably an S3 interface and Lambda in it or something like that. But that was a uh, that was a I don't know an interesting thing that's out there. It'd be it'd be fun to go talk with some uh, whoever would know this like how that's doing. I should I should talk. Yeah, with I mean I think that's more know. storage stuff. I mean they have the uh, totally. Uh, they have the Gov Cloud, which is kind of private cloudy, and they have VPC, virtual yes. private cloud, which is kind of private cloudy. So I think you know they begrudgingly embraced the reality that that most enterprises yeah. have. And so I, I bring that up because I think I think uh, well, I I was most heavily involved in, as I like to jokingly call it, the cloud wars of like uh, let's call it 2009 to 2013. I I, I worked at a uh, well, I worked at Dell doing cloud strategy and software strategy. So I spent a lot of time looking at different options and things like that. And, you know, they, I think, I think, uh, I think, um, I think, I think what we have in front of us here in our show notes, including my Amazon one are, are, I guess there's, there's at least four ideas of private cloud. The first one, I forget what, uh, what rhetorical trick this is. You always put a, uh, a pig without lipstick out there just to be eliminated. But the first idea is not doing private cloud, which is always very popular that the, the old, uh, the old, sure no private cloud or whatever. So we'll just set that pig aside, make some thick pork chops out of it, put it on the Traeger and enjoy some freshly squeezed watermelon juice. You know, on that note, <laughs> there's a lot of water in a watermelon and it doesn't taste as good as like the watermelon juice I get at the store. I don't know what, uh, I don't know what the difference is, but um, anyhow, so then the other one, like I think, I think, um, I think uh, the Azure stack, which is supposedly coming out in September, probably is, I shouldn't be so dismissive. Uh, that re- seems to represent like the uh, uh, you could almost call it the classic idea of a private cloud. I mean, I don't know. You'll have, to, you'll have to correct me if you've read through the details. But as I've been reading through it, it's basically like here's Azure on your own hardware, just sort of like and it's compatible and it's mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't have everything like I guess to do really fast and effective like uh, whatever the machine learning and stuff is. I mean, that's big parallel processing. So you probably need that. You know, it's hard to have in a three node thing that they start with. But anyways, that seems like the first model, which is like almost an exact duplication of of what you would get, uh, on, what, what you would get off premise on premise. Is that is that your impression of what's in in uh, Azure Stack? Yeah, I mean the Azure Stack stuff. I think is like, look, I want to run this, but to your originally when it first got announced, it was, hey, run this on your hardware, and then in the link you know i think that we have in the show notes and others you know Guth, scott guthrie the team there talked about more like no this should be a converged appliance because some of the reason that things like openstack struggled is they were just so many pieces that people struggled to weave together so what you want is a box from dell that just has the software on top and then you pay us per hour for vms and apps just like you would in public cloud so yeah it's just kind of like here is cloud in a box which you hate that term but that's that's what this model kind of is yeah. Yeah. And, and that cloud in a box thing, like it's, it's always uh, it's always frustrating on multiple angles. I mean, one, you know, the uh, the, the hipsters of cloud, everything's frustrating to them. Right. Like they, they just they, they, they don't want all the olds coming in and like defining something that's actually useful and that works. So, you know, that's that that seems to annoy them to no end, which is fine. You know, I get it. Uh, here I am juicing stuff. Right. Like instead of having my uh, sunny D. But the other frustrating thing is like. It must be like technologically and businessly, is that a word, hard to actually make a cloud in a box? Because I don't think it's ever really been done. It's never been done. <laughs> like right. after all. I mean, that's, I think that's. Yeah, part, yeah, you know, exactly. The, the hipsters probably say like, we've tried this. I mean, this is Microsoft's third try at this. Like this has not been 
successful to some extent because A, it feels like there's a lot of promise, but then when you look at the caveats, it's not worth it. And then you still have to figure out how to update this software. It's not as transparent as the public cloud. And what happens when you yeah. have scale challenges and all the promise sounds fantastic. And then the minute you start trying to do it, you realize, meh, I might as well just keep doing what I'm doing or just use public cloud. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, one one theory, which uh, I don't know if I agree with it or not, but like I, I pulled out this quote from uh, the aforementioned Scott Guthrie. He's an interesting character to track his career. He'd be a good uh, if there was enough interest in the world in this kind of thing, he would be the kind of person you would write like a uh, like a biography about that was a way of telling the history of of contemporary tech and how, how it works out. But anyways, uh, like he has this quote basically saying to summarize it, that like uh, when people build their own IT, they tend to want to customize it a lot. And that's not going to work, <laughs> right? Like we're basically going to have like more or less a uh, again, to use all my own wording, like a black box. And you have to work with the vendors to have it all integrated together. And that makes uh, a cloud notion work out. And that seems like, um, I mean, that would be one backward looking theory I would have is that each time, each time people have tried to make a cloud in the box, either they allow too much customization or the IT departments buying them want to do too much customization. And, and that, I don't know. I mean, I could see that that could pan out certainly in the instance of, um, all of the pivotal cloud foundry installs out there. Like, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of room for variation in, in, in the stack, right? Like, like it's basically like whatever infrastructure pools you have out there, just give, give, uh, give pivotal cloud foundry the credentials and slowly walk away. (laughs) Just like uh, allow it to take over. Yeah. I mean, mean, in my experience, most private clouds start as it projects. And the problem is that it does not take into account what public cloud got right, which was a good developer experience. And so there's always been that disconnect. And frankly, no private cloud will ever be successful unless you get the software right. It doesn't matter what your infrastructure looks like. It doesn't matter where you stick it. If you do not put the right interface on top, you don't have the right abstractions on top, you're just wasting your time, at least in my uh, hot take opinion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that that was another thing, like even back when I was in the uh, the old cloud wars was the uh, I, I, uh, I mean, I think it was a good thing, but I, I spent a lot of uh, failed attempts to try to talk with everyone about like, what's the point of using this cloud stuff, which which is a, a stack atop of what you're just saying is like the software that you're actually running on this cloud, the workloads, as they would say, are incredibly important to think about because that will drive what it is you're going to be doing with cloud, right? Like if all you want, like this was a very, uh, there were a couple of popular notions back then that everyone had. One of them was, I don't think they thought of it this way, but it was just like cheaper virtualization, right? And this is a very like, this is a very like 90s, 2000 view of what, what the IT department does or what a significant part of the IT department, which is, uh, I have no idea really what applications you're running on top of me, but I provide these SLA. It's a very SRE kind of thing. I provide these SLAs of availability and, and costs and uptime of all the infrastructure underneath it. And so a lot of the cloud thing I would come across was like, I want to do that same thing. And then I don't really know what people are going to run on top of it, which for storage and things like that maybe is a good idea and, and stuff like that. But I think it's it was always troublesome for just shifting your uh, your off-the-shelf software onto it. And then the uh, the other thing I would encounter a lot would be uh, bursting, <laughs> which, which yes. is... Sort of like, which I don't know, I haven't really done a uh, anything but my usual like uh, thinking in the shower at 3 a.m. when I can't go to sleep analysis of bursting. But I think it was just a variation of like, I don't want to pay a lot for that muffler, right? It was sort of like, 
every now and then I need more capacity and I'm just going to magically burst into the public cloud to use capacity. Well, it's almost like the whole private cloud value prop. Again, it sounds brilliant. And then you realize, like, I have no app workloads that can magically scale geographies with and copy their state and run functionally. Like, it, it, what, what are you, SharePoint going to cloud burst? Like, what did you have exactly. that was going to magically work 4,000 miles away in someone else's data center by flipping over a load balancer? Like, you, you don't have those yep. apps. Uh-huh. So again, no, really and that, cool that's idea. that's that's exactly that's exactly the point we're we're both making is like the software that you're running on top of all of this, be it the the platform abstraction layer stuff that you were mentioning or the actual applications that we were both talking about. Like that's that's uh, that's both key to needing to do some sort of cloud thing, and then also key to like it working. Yeah, I mean, you and I have seen <laughs> Cote. If you look at our favorite analyst firms, you know, survey after survey shows, you know, fifty percent, whatever the thing, the number is, of shops saying they have a private cloud. I think, in my mind, ten percent of those shops actually have a private cloud, and the rest of them have a virtualization layer, or maybe yeah. some sort of cloud management platform on top. But Look, I mean, private cloud might be getting interesting again because we finally are figuring out the right software abstractions. And sure, we're biased. And I say, if you stick Pivotal Cloud Foundry on top of OpenStack or vSphere, you might finally have something useful. And that's maybe we're actually at that point where location can matter less. And I can drop an Azure Stack pod in my data center. I can use these other things because the software has finally delivered the sort of experience that developers care about. Yeah, and to that end, I mean, I think think it'll be fun to see... uh, uh what happens with Azure Stack, right? Like, I mean, I think I think there will definitely, well, without a doubt, there will be many use cases where it works because otherwise it probably wouldn't be released as a product at this point. <laughs> but oh, you'd be surprised. Uh, but yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Has no, potential I, I and Pivotal's exciting. Yeah, what 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 I mean what I mean to say is I think I think in this area over the past what's this year over the past ten years I think Microsoft has built up a lot of credibility in a release like this, right? Uh, now. Uh, what will also be interesting is what you are talking about. Is if is if the notion is if you get enough feelers that the notion of private cloud like makes sense and the in the the simple classical definition, right? And that's what I mean. We we see. In fact, if I was looking at the stats recently, like the huge majority of our customers run in private cloud mode. I'm putting that in air quotes. Whatever whatever it may be, right? Uh, and like that seems to be working out for them. <laughs> and so outside of the the sort of cloud foundry world, uh, it would be interesting to see how that applies more broadly. And then to the point of analysts covering it and people being confused about it, like it could be, uh, it'd be fun if that was very well defined and actually worked out the way people wanted. And uh, it's a, it'd be an opportunity for uh, all sorts of interesting shifts in the topology. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just stringing together a bunch of fancy sounding words. <laughs> yeah, stuff. I mean, we all thought, I think, even four years ago, that the it was an inevitable march to public cloud. Like, there was just no... Yeah. And I'm, again, I'm a giant believer. I think that's where it makes a ton of sense. But if you do can get it right on-prem, there's enough reasons to say, look, I'm going to take advantage of the assets I have. I'm going to take advantage of my own geographies and things like that. Like, that's not terrible if you get the software right. Like, we might actually be there. So so then that brings up uh, in my... In my uh, categorization off the top of my head the what was what were we on the fourth sort of thing and that and and you know it's kind of related to uh google's announcement around some vpc stuff they have going on and you do see i've i've heard many fanciful terms for this i used to call it the public private cloud but essentially or a managed service managed a managed cloud is another way of thinking about it but there are all sorts of schemes one of the things private cloud might be is like it's private by network isolation 
and having your network all isolated and closed off. So you don't in this in this public pride scenario, public pride, public private cloud scenario, you don't actually run the data centers or uh, update them. But it's not like all your stuff is, you know, on the public cloud. It's more isolated. It's like an old colo sort of situation. Right. And, Which you know, plenty of companies that seems use. popular. Right. And they still. Trust yeah, yeah. that. So, yeah, I mean, a couple of years ago, if you remember, there were a spat of companies offering Heroku did this others where they actually were doing some physical isolation of assets and kind of calling it virtual private. And that was interesting. And then it kind of slowed down. But, you know, what Google announced with their virtual private cloud, it's I'm impressed because that's a hard thing to replicate with your own private cloud. The VLAN stretching they're doing, some of the cross-site networking, the tenancy they're setting up, the expandability of your subnet. Like they're just doing some really cool stuff that would be hard to do in your own private cloud. So if I can use your Model 4 and say, look, this thing is still either network or physically isolated or both, and I can really configure this thing quickly, gosh, that adds a ton of value. So, I mean, why do it yourself? Yeah, yeah, it it is like uh, what you know, I, and and it brings up another thing I'm I'm kind of stuck on when it comes to like cloud theory, which is, I mean, I have to assume after reading like the uh, you know, everything we know about Google and and other public clouds, and also kind of reading the SRE book, like a lot of a lot of, and I'm generalizing here as as we talked about earlier, but a lot of public clouds uh, or cloud stuff starts with uh, hey, stop tinkering. <laughs> Right. Like don't customize stuff like you're only going to have like so many T-shirts in the drawer, sort of like the classic. I don't know if if, if the uh, the females in the tech world are like this, but there's a subculture of males in the tech world, I guess, starting with Steve Jobs, who uh, basically have one outfit and they have 50 50 uh, copies of it in their wardrobe. And, uh, you know, it's sort of like that seems to be the cloud approach is if you want to get all these efficiencies, you uh you you can either think of it as standardizing or constraining, which are kind of the same thing. And uh, you know, again, across those models, it, it, it it'll be interesting to see how Azure Stack deals with that, and then what the what the acceptance or kickback is from it, right? And then in something like a uh, your public private cloud or virtual, you know, whatever, like that stuff's inherent in there. Of course, that's how uh, public cloud works out, and uh, that's certainly like in our world. I feel like. I don't know. You do a lot more like uh, sales help and and uh, competitive stuff than I do anymore. But like, uh, there's there's probably a low double digit percentage of objection questions that are basically like your point is moot, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> the the thing you're asking about made sense, but it's sort of like uh, it's like I, I I made this old cartoon way back when of remember those talking dinosaurs and they're talking about one of them's talking about like. Uh, Here's this new horseless carriage thing I call a car. And then the other dinosaur is like, yeah, but where do I hitch the horses up to? And like, it seems like there's a, uh, a fair amount of where do I hitch the horses up to questions when you have a huge amount of standardization. But, uh, you know, I don't know. There you go. So, so what else, uh, what else do we have going on this week? News wise, or I yeah. guess last week. Yeah, so one thing I, uh, I added to the list was we announced the, uh, the formal project of Spring Cloud Function. So this was something that our uh, esteemed James Waters mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, what, like last December? And everyone was like, oh, I guess we have a new product, which was awesome. So this is the actual delivery of some of that work. So what this is, is a Java framework library model for building more serverless-like Java apps. And what's cool is that there's a number of unique things in here. So if you do like using Lambda, right, this isn't a function as a service. This isn't a, a Lambda replacement or Google Cloud function replacement. This is the app sort of framework that actually runs the app. So it's got some cool things like, hey, separating how you trigger the thing from the thing. 
So here's my logic. And just by adding a library kind of at runtime or kind of after I've built it, it would get triggered by a Kafka message or a rabbit message or an HTTP call. And so that's kind of cool to be able to separate that. And then Java is sometimes seen as heavyweight, but the fact that you can pass a string in to an endpoint and we'll actually then compile it into a bean that you can then execute later as a function, that's a very lightweight thing, right? It's not a whole big fat project. So we're doing some things to kind of make Java more lightweight, more triggered on demand. It's a really cool project. It's not generally available yet, but you can now run the code. I've built a few projects with it just to try it out. So some really neat stuff. I think it's a cool reimagining of what it means to do on-demand invocation of Java apps. It's pretty cool to see us innovating there. Yeah, you know, maybe you can tell me what this is, but but I've noticed over the past three months, uh, uh, to, to, to evoke them in kind of a joking way, all the hipsters are just like freaked out about serverless being awesome. They even have like, is this Jeff thing? What is that? Is that <laughs> yeah, some, Jeff uh, yeah, yeah. Is, is that, is that some sort of serverless thing or something? What, uh, what's the story with that? It is. I don't know where the name came from. Someone will correct this, but mm. yeah, I mean, it, it's hit a fever pitch and, Again, I, I think it's great stuff. I, I'm just not yet on the bandwagon that says this is the entire future of computing. I'm just not there yet. Yes. Well, well, they'll do some further research. What's this Jeff thing? I'm writing that in the show notes. <laughs> we'll yeah. And how come it's not called Larry? I mean, Larry is always I'm, there, just waiting to be used. I'm, ra- I'm waiting for Jessica Kahn or, or Larry Kampf or something. Ooh, yeah. And then also often uh, .NET land. What, uh, what you, you had some news there. There's circuit breakers in, in steel tone. Yeah, that's now. right. Which again, if I said that statement to my parents, they would say, what do you, what do you do for a living? What the hell circuit breakers? That's right. As, as, as they say in other podcasts, did you just have a stroke? <laughs> what does that mean? So steel toe is the, uh, the .NET libraries that we've built. It's open source stuff that lets .NET devs connect to things like spring cloud services. Like, Hey, use a config store, use a service discovery engine, use these connectors to talk to things like Redis and rabbit, just kind of make .NET apps a little more cloud native. So one thing we've added, which had been a high request, was Hystrix. This is that Netflix library that does kind of, if you think bulkhead pattern, protect your apps, right? That if this app fails, kind of gracefully catch that and maybe use a fallback and you know return some empty results or something like that. So it's meant to protect your apps when you have these distributed systems. So we've added that now to SteelToe. So I can build .NET apps that have this sort of protection from fault, and then it can feed the metrics to the same dashboard the Java Spring user would use. So I can see, hey, this circuit's open, or this circuit's closed, and that means you know we're using a fallback response instead of the default one. So just some really cool visibility into a really popular Netflix project. Now that's all part of the .NET library. It's, it's neat stuff seeing that pick up. Mm, yep. And then uh, the last thing, so, you know, we talked about uh, uh, Microsoft sales reorg the other day, and and, uh, and and I finally actually went and read up about it. So, I, you know, I'll put a link in the show notes, but I wrote up some little notes and uh, other articles about that. And, and I think I think it was, was, you know, from my perspective, like what's interesting about it is to think about how the uh, how you can do some sort of reverse tea leaf reading that might be redundant about how uh, how people organize their sales force, hopefully. Is uh, I always I'm always dodgy on the tail and the wagging tail dog situation, but like it's good to have one of those you know the the actual way uh, the market works being I think the dog and then how your sales force is organized being the tail I I forget but I think that's the right version of it right and uh, there's also I I found some uh, some good IDC hardware uh, uh, private public cloud sort of like market share estimates which those are always fun to look at. 
because it gives you a, uh, I mean, you know, they're like five year into the future forecasting, but it's, it's fun to like see a hundred percent area chart about how something like private cloud and public cloud starts to eat away at, uh, at traditional infrastructure. If you're into, uh, charts. didn't you say Cote a while back that it's sometimes tricky to go do some retrospectives on analyst predictions from years ago. Like, I mean, it's interesting on these, like what's the 2017 oh, yeah. prediction from all the firms? We already have Windows Phone dominance and uh, private cloud everywhere. Like what's, I, I, I haven't looked myself, but we should be doing some. Uh, yeah. Well, well, since you asked to have a mini, mini rant about analyst land, which, which I, I, I feel like I have a, a permission card to do so. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I don't, so, so the issue there is, well, there's two issues. One, um, over the course of like five year, 10 years back, I don't think the analysts do that. Um, and I don't know if IDC does this, but, but a lot of analyst firms will retire their research, which to me is just confounding. Um, but, um, which, which is to say it's no longer available. And so I think, you know, I think at IDC, who I think they're the best ones for, um, forecasting and market sizing just because uh i don't know reliability and forecasting is not really a thing i know that sounds absurd but that's not the number one metric i would use i mean i would use consistency and the time that they've been doing it and that you have the same kind of people working on it so you sure. get a consistent view of stuff right. like i remember when i went into 451 research uh um, I replaced uh, Rachel Chalmers, who had headed up the infrastructure software practice. And so at some point very early on, I went to go talk with the, the 451 market sizers for the infrastructure software business. And my first notion was like, we got to completely redo this, <laughs> which which was just because it was my view of the market. Right. And that would have been terrible because then it would have, you know, there's no consistency uh, across it. Anyhow. So, you know, I think if you dig you can actually get a lot of historic data from IDC. Like, I think if you get their Black Book product, uh, I think it goes back a long time. And I think you can get past versions of it. But they don't really make it easy like you would want, where you're, there's just some page you go to and you see, like, let's rate how accurate we were uh, about these things. And at IDC, at least, within, like, a kind of like a two- or three-year period, and especially quarterly period, they'll tell you when they correct a forecast. So they're kind of okay, but it's not that easy. And then, like, uh, you know, Gartner might be a little bit like that with their big, uh, with their they don't they don't call it a black book, but they might have that data. But but in general, like Gartner is the one that will like archive their research as if like the stuff isn't valid anymore. Which to some extent it's not valid, but it's really hard to get a uh, historic perspective of it. I don't know. Plus, you got to pay for all that stuff, which you know I'm sympathetic to that. I, th I think we can all agree on money. Uh, and so it's in, unless you have analyst access, it's it's pretty hard to go do that. And, and, I, and I think this does create an annoying situation. The uh, uh, the aforementioned hipsters, which are sort of like the ones who would complain about this stuff the most, don't actually have access to the research. So it's sort of like they're theoretic. They're complaining about something that they read about in blogs and Twitter and press releases, which I think I'll, I'll end my rant here. I think that was a... Uh, I guess this is in like 2015 and 2016. There was a lot of complaining about bimodal IT. And it's just like, well, there's, you know, like a whole bunch of Gartner material on that. You should probably read all of that before you complain about it. But you don't have access to it. So it was like uh, sort of tragic. Not not that not that the uh, complainers are wrong, but it was just more like you got to have a common pool of 
stuff you're complaining about. Yeah, I don't know the solution to all that, but when analysts are considered justifiably so, uh, you know, a, a source of, of knowledge and authority in these spaces, when their research is behind a paywall, it can make it tricky when, you know, the numbers float around in the conference slide. Everyone goes, where the hell did that number come from? Like, how did you hit that? Yeah. So I don't know how you solve that. But it seems like yeah, you know, I I I was talking with some uh, let's call them vendor side people recently in the cloud space, and and of course we started complaining about analysts, and everyone's always very kind. They're like, well, ex- except when you did this work, Cote, which is is fine. I don't know if that's the case. I go back and read my stuff every now and then. It's not always so awesome, but uh, you know what I tell people about like Gartner uh, is they have this thing called the Gartner Technology Professionals, which. Uh, I think that's what it is. I think it's plural. And uh, that's the old Burton group. And I never, until I came to Pivotal and had access to all this, I'd never really read it except a stray pirated report here and there. Uh, but uh, they actually produce, I shouldn't say actually, because I'm not judging the other side, the, what do they call it? The the uh, the leader people or something? <laughs> something um, like that. Yeah. Like, I, I think the GTP people, like, they do, um, from the perspective of, like, companies uh you know that are considering technology it's actually the gtp people that do the 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 maximal amount that you would expect them to which is what is your advice on how i would use the software and what i would do like that's all they cover and they have these like 50 60 page tomes on like i mean there's one on like uh you know cloud platforms and there'll be one on hadoop and it really is like a very thorough analysis uh, that you would look at if you were evaluating and even trying to figure out how to use these things. And, you know, they do that on the other side to some extent. Like there'll be some advice about uh, selecting things and shortlisting like with the Magic Quadrant. But I generally, what I tell people is generally like industry analysts, a lot of people forget that first word. Like their job is to tell you what's happening in the industry primarily and what the vendor sports are and the rankings and the trends and their job, their secondary job, in order to inform that, is always to kind of like know what you would actually do and how things work. But that's their secondary job. And so you can't really like, you shouldn't really go to them, only go to them for advice about what you would actually do. You should go to also people like the uh, GTP folks and right. stuff. Well, like we that. just have to get read on again soon and, and gab all analyst things. That's right. That's right. Hey. It's interstitial mid-roll stuff. I just wanted to promote a few upcoming Pivotal things here. Through June, July, and August, we had the Cloud Native Roadshow coming to all sorts of cities. This is a free day-long event we do with Google that goes over what exactly Cloud Native is and how our customers are using Pivotal and Google technologies and approaches. The cities, and this is a long list, so get ready. The cities are Stuttgart, Dallas, Denver, LA, Seattle, San Francisco, Amsterdam, Seoul, Hong Kong, Sydney, and Singapore. There's a big list of dates that you can look at. You can check out the show notes for a link to it, or if you just want to go and Google for Pivotal Cloud Native Roadshow, you'll find it uh, pretty easily. We also have Spring Days Atlanta coming up July 18th and 19th. It's chock full of sessions for developers who want to learn more about the Spring Framework, Cloud Native Style Development, and of course, to be fully buzzword compliant, microservices. If you go to springdays.io, you can get more info. And that's the last Spring Days we're having so far that we have scheduled this year. So get that one in if you're over in uh, Grits and Pork Land. It'll be good stuff. Finally, why it's way in the future, we also have uh, Spring One Platform coming up December 4th and 5th. Now, registration just opened recently for this. I think you might have missed the early bird thing for it, but that's fine. 
There's also still the CFP uh, open. It closes on September 1st. Now, what goes on at this conference? Well, it's full of what I would call the uh, the suit track and the technology track. In the suit track, you've got case studies and managers and developers as well, but organizations talking about how they've transformed their company and what they're doing with, with Cloud Native and their organizations, how they're getting good results by switching over to doing things in more of a, uh, a pivotal way. But then there's also plenty of events uh, for those of you out there who enjoy more uh, nerding out and doing technical things to check out. I'm uh, one of the chairs of the uh, DevOps pipeline line and uh, monitoring track that we inform- informally call it. We've already got lots of excellent talks queued up from the likes of Home Depot, Express Scripts, Allstate Northern Trust, and of course, plenty of pe- pivotal people. I'll be speaking in that track if that's anything. So come on there. Again, it's in San Francisco, December 4th and 5th. And if you just go to uh, springplatform.io, you can check it all out. And with that, enjoy the episode this week. Well, so uh, we don't have a guest, in case you can't tell. So, so other than other than uh, drawing out our new segment, as we have successfully done, uh, I, I, you know, uh, Richard had the good idea to go over uh, stuff that we're working on, which which seems good. Always easy to talk about yourself. So, you like uh, let let's start with you, Richard. What's what's the what's the stuff you got going on? What's what's on your? Uh, do you got some sort of desk situation? Are you one of these? Are you one of these people who keeps a bunch of? Uh, logos, uh, logos, icons on your desktop, or do you have do you have an intricately organized file system? Or, or third option, do you have the uh, the iCloud slash Google Docs view of the world, which is a uh, flat file system but isolated somewhere? Mm, good question. I mean, my desktop itself has no icons. I, I don't like a messy desktop. But then, uh, you know, some light organization in a pivotal folder of Docs, and I use G Drive for stuff as well. But you know, try to keep things fairly organized as I'm writing and, and reading. And, you know, a day job is supposed to be leading our product marketing team, but I do like to research and, and write a lot of stuff. So, yeah, the things I'm working on at the moment are uh, I just posted this morning a, a take on cloud native integration. What does that mean? I did some research and did a presentation on that at a conference a couple of weeks ago in London, and it was well received. And so just kind of exploring that more. What does it mean to modernize your integration practice? You know, how is that mm. sometimes accidentally holding you back? Because now you've got all these 12-factor apps, and you're doing CI, CD, and everything absolutely grinds to a halt because your ESB team is backlogged for three months. So how do you actually think about the integration piece, just like data, just like security? Because if you don't fix all of them, it really doesn't matter how good you are at apps because it's all, yeah. all going to block up. I'll have to check that out because you know I, I always like to uh, uh, overly comically simplify things, but I feel like there's there's a good twenty thirty percent of enterprise application development that's basically like I have a form that someone filled out, and three or more people have to look at it, and then I need to, uh, as they used to say, mash up some other data in it, and at the end the form's either going to have a green check mark or a big red X on it. <laughs> <laughs> and right. like that, that general, that general, whether it's right. insurance, banking, probably even farm, all sorts of things, especially government, it seems to repeat itself over and over again. And then, and then to your point, like a huge necessary component of that is integration with not only data sources, but other processes and things like that. Yeah, exactly right. It's the workflow piece. And then all this SaaS stuff is great, but what, you know, how the heck are you connecting to Workday and how are you connecting to Salesforce and using this weird cloud database? And like, that's necessary now. So it was, anyway, it's a good, hopefully a good blog post. It's out there on my personal blog, com, and probably talk about it more and more. So that was, 
something cranked out, something for the Pivotal blog probably this week is my my take on event-driven architecture and how what does that really look like technology-wise? What does that look like kind of capability-wise? And actually, speaking of Gardner, I went through a number of their folks and and had them put some eyeballs on this to make sure I wasn't talking crazy. And so it's had some good peer review stuff industry-wise internally. And it'll just look at what are the core components in an event-driven architecture? Yes, how does Cloud Foundry help help you with that? But frankly, I just haven't seen much in the industry around not just scenario-based. Like if you read some of the Gartner reports, they're really, they're fine. But they focus on like, hey, here's one use case of how you can process events through Kafka and dump it out to something. Like that's great. But if I'm a CIO and I say, okay, what do I need to do to actually be event driven like there are not that it's not that information out there so i thought i'd write that up as kind of a reference architecture from my old enterprise architecture days like doing reference mm. architectures so put one of those out we'll see if it uh lands with a thud or people go yay <laughs> how, how do you judge that nowadays the thud you know, or the I've, yay i've uh, i've given up because there's times where i will handcraft <laughs> a blog post and think that this will go viral and then you get like one comment on twitter and a few hits other times i'll yeah. do like a throwaway thing and that goes nuts so i've given up predicting what people care about i just try to include more memes and and cat gifs because that seems to <laughs> drive traffic yeah yeah you know i i think i'm more or less in the same thing i think i think over the course of a year there's sort of like sheer metrics you can look at like you know uh, I think I think that uh, uh, that that cloud native whatever book I have like that gets downloaded like fifteen or twenty times a week at this point or something and so you know over time that's meaningful but uh, you know it's mostly confounding like the things that people end up liking I I don't I don't know what the deal is no I mean the uh, most popular blog post I still have on my own personal blog is something I wrote years ago on where should you host your Node.js app. Like somehow that's like the number two hit every day on the damn blog. It drives me crazy. So, but yeah. again, you just don't know what has good lasting power and that's fine. Many of the things we write today will actually be more popular a month from now or longer. And either way, you just have to put yourself out there. Maybe you're wrong. And sometimes I appreciate that too, because someone will yell at you and you have to read yeah. the comments. Yeah. I think the number one thing I write stuff on nowadays is just, uh, uh, not word of mouth on the classical thing, but people actually saying something, whether it's, it's online or at conferences or whatever. Cause that, uh, like, uh, I don't know, for the for the kind of people that the kind of audience and market or whatever you want to call it that we work with, there's not that many of them. <laughs> and so like, like the uh, the actual numbers of people looking at something are very small. But but the, you know, if if, if the right one to three, I don't know, managers or developers or enterprise architects at some gigantic bank, look at it and like it, then it has a huge effect. And so it's it's the uh, I don't know what you call that kind of model. Well, it's kind of the aggregator. I've noticed I wrote a post on how enterprise architecture adjusts to the cloud. And that thing blew up because it got picked up by a few different like EA sort of aggregates who shared it out. Or, you know, if something hits the DevOps weekly newsletter, it blows up. So it's just interesting how certain things that collect these musings we throw out into the ether that 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 seems to help more than just who gets the most retweets on the first post. Yeah. So what else do you got there? Yeah, so I'm going to Denver next week to deliver another .NET Cloud Native Bootcamp. I put together this event with Zach Brown here at Pivotal, where we would walk through kind of what does modern .NET look like, what does steel, how do you use steel toe, and then we spend the second half of the day actually building apps. So we did this in Seattle a couple of weeks ago, and it was awesome to have 20-something people in the room who hadn't touched any of these tools. Some of these were admins, this was not just devs, kind of cranking out some little bits of code, pushing in the Cloud Foundry, doing some of this crazy, you know, backing config store and service discovery stuff. So 
we got a request to take it on the road. So we'll do Denver next, probably one more city, and then I'll hand it off to people who like traveling all the time. But it's really neat to see this conversation before. Cloud Foundry is awesome for .NET. There's some cool libraries out there. And just kind of unlocking some people who thought that their career was stalled because they were a .NET shop. And instead, we're, mm. we're opening that back up again, which is awesome. Yeah. So, and then coming in September, Azure Stack. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> then we'll retool it all for private. Cloud. That you know, you know that that would be that would be you could finally uh, fulfill one of the reoccurring fantasies I have with vendors is like, why don't you just bring one of those, right? Like maybe maybe you can actually. I think I have a picture of of my uh, my friend on my other podcast, uh, Matt Ray, actually rolling around a uh, a Dell OpenStack half rack, um, but like. If- if you I could use a dolly get... to bring in P, a PV, you know, Azure stack with PCF on top, and then we all just connect yeah. to that. That's the dream. You got to get one of those. Just uh, come September, call them up and have them ship you one. Right, dolly as a service. That'd be awesome. So we've got a yeah. couple other things, just a quick mention. So for those of you who like Spring Cloud and development, I'm finishing up my second Pluralsight course on Spring Cloud. That's that video on-demand training. Pivotal's a partner now. It's insanely popular. I've been doing it for five or six years now. And so I'm just about done a Spring Cloud course on how do you actually coordinate your microservices. So that should be six hours of fun for your family. So that's mm. almost finished. And then I'm doing executive briefing in a few weeks on IoT and Cloud Foundry and platform. So now I'm in the research mode for a lot of that and thinking about what are the sort of things you really need for modern IoT. So that jumps me back into a learning mode to find out Kind of what's the latest thinking on that from both a consumer perspective, but then also supply chain back office stuff. It seems like there's a lot of cool stuff happening there, but what tech do you actually need to be successful there? So that's what I'm yeah. with. Well, I'll have to check those out. That's all, that's all stuff that uh, people ask me about. And supposedly, given the volume of uh, noise I make after they ask me that, that I know something about. Although I usually say, I don't know anything about this. And then I just proceed to talk, which, which is uh, that's important. scary. Yeah. Yeah. That well, so I I only have two things I wanted to point people to. Like, uh, so uh, I uh, most recently, I guess it was just last week, I was talking with um, one of our more recent customers uh, with a gaggle of enterprise architects. I think I think that's what you call a uh, group of enterprise architects, right? A gaggle. You might just call it a cab. I was talking with a cab of enterprise architects, and uh, you know they they had a lot of questions about what a cloud native enterprise architecture is. And so I, I sort of like, and I don't know, I mean, this is, this is sort of like drives a lot of the way I do things. I was like, oh, I should uh, go collect together that crazy board on my virtual wall of all the stuff I've gotten and, uh, and start writing it up. And I think, and then, and then also, uh, if, if, if you were paying attention to my subtweeting last week, I wrote together a talk abstract that I have now submitted to people, uh, conferences. So I need to start gathering together all the, uh, sort of, theoretic and actual real advice case studies of what enterprise architecture in, in, a, in a cloud native world is and as you were saying i mean you sent over a uh, a nice list of of things which i think that's that's a good uh, initial roundup of everything but there's i find on this topic there's no end of questions and no end of lack of answers <laughs> so to speak like uh it's it's as i was telling this this uh this cab of architects so to speak it's only been like in the past two or three years where you actually have more than a handful of large organizations doing anything cloud native. So you sure. haven't, uh, what, are they, what do they call that in economics? Natural research or something? Like there's only, uh, there's not really enough natural resource to exactly know everything about it. 
but there definitely are a lot of uh, emerging things. And I think I think the intellectual sort of, if you will, quandary that this is, is uh, if in a cloud native or, or DevOps, if you prefer, uh, method, if we push down 99% of the responsibility down to the product teams and we connect them directly to the business, uh, what do enterprise architects do? Because <laughs> classically, I don't know, I mean, you know, you, having done this, you probably have good input on it. But classically, an enterprise architect, a lot of what they do is, I mean, there's two things stereotypically. They do, which is the same thing, they do governance to make sure you're not doing dumb stuff. And also that your long-term view is good. You're trying to prevent, like, technical debt. But then they also like fill in all these gaps between all the various roles that you have. And, you know, they try to have the, uh, the lattice work that makes it so the business people talk to the product managers and the QA people and the ops people. And they try to make it all sort of fit together. Hence architecture. Right. I'm supposed but, to uh, kind of be the connector, the matchmaker in a lot of cases. Exactly. It's just no, no two shops that I've ever either worked in or talked to do EA the same way. So that's why it's yeah. so difficult. Some are like business architects. Like we will change how we do supply chain and how we send products to market. Others are like just they're technical architects and they do reference architectures and they incubate new stuff and they work across teams. And there's just no common definition, it seems like at this point. Yeah. And and so like in, in talking about this with people over the past few years, either directly or indirectly, I think my evolving theory of, of what cloud native enterprise architecture is, is um, whenever you scale up to like, you know, hundreds of teams and thousands of products, like to a large organization, uh, there's a lot of white space between these teams and you need to figure, I don't know what it is exactly, but someone has to take care of it. Otherwise, it doesn't all like really fit together. And I think a huge part of that, and I don't know if this is like what an EA should do or someone else, but um, like I think I'll finally release this this uh, conversation I had in the next episode with, with some of the Allstate people about setting this up is there's this initial year or two run where it's like you're just setting up all this stuff and doing the change management of getting everyone to use a common build pipeline and getting everyone to uh, run on a common platform and spreading out the teams and all of that. And I feel like an EA or the cab of EA should have a big hand in all of that because they're, they're one of the, one of the few people who have not only the big picture perspective, I mean, in theory, I've met plenty of EAs who just sort of like, they can, they can direct you to the bathroom in their ivory tower, but they don't really know what happens out in the city, so to speak. That was a weird metaphor. Uh, but the good EAs kind of know everything that's going on. And also equally importantly, they know all the internal politics of everything that goes on in the organization. If if they've rose, rosen, if they've risen to that level, and so it seems like they could be uh, very helpful in in uh, changing things over. That's the thing. But I don't know if they do it yeah. right. It's a good change agent. If you do it wrong, yeah. you're going to get fired. Yeah, yeah. I always there's always the fired option. Anyways, speaking of snarky results for stuff. So another thing I started doing this weekend, you know, I, I mentioned I was at my mom's house, uh, experiencing the pleasure of a juicer, uh, or, or I guess, I don't know if I was experiencing it as much as, uh, appreciating its results. So I've been thinking for a while that I should collect together all my, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm arrogant like that. I should collect together all my register columns and a few other things that I've written here and there into, uh, one of those little books, you know, have you heard of books? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and so I started doing that, and I think I think I've got I've got all the register pieces that make sense. There's a few of them that are just like too topical or uh, to put in there, but 
Uh, yeah. So I started collecting that together in what, what I call like a paste pot book, right? Like, I'm sure you've read these books and you read halfway through it and you're like, hold on. I think this is just a bunch of blog posts someone strung together. And so that's what I got going on there. And I'll see. I think I need maybe, I think I'm up to 20,000 words. And I think you want to be at like 30 or 40,000 words before you have a book. Otherwise, I think they call that a novella. Is that right? That's right. And, uh, I mean, I desperately want the back cover of your book to include your best comments on your articles. I mean, that would just be the best, like not the, like Cote is a brilliant writer who really should, no, it would be like, here's a pot smoking hipster who doesn't understand yeah. the bobs. Like that's yeah, got Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I've, I've been talking with some people who are like legit publisher or who have connections to legit publishers to maybe do something. But as always, if uh, I get angsty and if anything, I'll just publish a PDF somewhere. And in that case, I will definitely take Please. Uh, the ana- the analysis that I'm a uh, a volume taking <laughs> DevOps Gonzo person is the top quote. Uh, That'll be uh, yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah. But but yeah, I'll I'll put a link to both of those. Like I do with these books, I I have them uh, uh, publicly available to comment on in Google Docs, and I think uh, it's always good to get input on that stuff, especially the first one. So uh, before we wrap up, I mean you've talked about this a little bit, but I'm I'm curious, what's your uh, what's the tool chain you use for all this writing? You uh, you use a notepad over there. What what do you, what do you do for all that? How do you there's 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 really well I know the publishing tool chain because we both publish to the same CMS. But like there's the collecting together your notes and research, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe maybe you're like that guy Toby in the West Wing where it's just all in your head and yeah. you don't actually have to ever write anything down. And then there's the actually writing it. So right. what what do you use for those things? Yeah. So it usually starts off in one note. And I, I've used that for years. So, it's like, you know, I like Evernote. That, that's where I just gather random thoughts and start to make bulleted lists. And that eventually turns into something. And that's when I actually started that. Uh, Josh McKenzie turned me on to using the Hemingway app. So I stopped using so many big words mm. and make it uncomfortable to read. So then I actually write whatever I'm doing, a blog post, a white paper, whatever in Hemingway. So I get kind of a good feeling. I didn't accidentally get too verbose. And then I end up probably copying it into a Google Doc so I can share it around for peer review. And then obviously we publish mm. the same way. So that's usually how everything flows for me, whether that's a personal blog post or whatever. That's good. See, that's confirming because that's I, – I don't use the Hemingway app. I go with that every now and then. I'm like – I was joking about this earlier. Like, oh, man, that seems like a lot of work with the way that I <laughs> it's write. It's actually pretty nice. But, you know, there's <laughs> yeah, certain yeah, quirks. Yeah. But, you know, if anything, it just helps me make – you know, when it, you get that red mark as your sentence is too long, it really gets in your head. So it really helps you write more yeah. succinctly. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. I know. I know it's not a lot of work to put it into it. It's a lot of work to, if you believe it's advice, go back and fix it. That's that's the uh, – but sure, I'm, I'm sure it, it, it results in clear writing, right? Like, you know – one pair of baby shoes never used. That's, 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 that's what you want when you're in your clean, well-lit place. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, uh, yeah, that's confirming because that's what I always come back to. I always, I always cycle through using all sorts of stuff, but I don't use OneNote because I'm not a Microsoft person. I use Evernote. But every now and then I think I'll have like plain text files with Markdown. And I tried to use that Bear application once, which is lovely. If I had never used Evernote, I would probably use that Bear application to like collect everything together. And then, uh, I don't know. You got to put it in Google Docs. That's like <laughs> eventually everything. Goes. Yeah, like like that's that's the, that's like the only way to collaborate nowadays. I mean the the best way. I don't know. Maybe maybe uh, other things are good too, but it's just like that's uh, everyone has that, and I think they more or less understand it. That's right. We're making Google's brain smarter because I'm sure it's reading all the docs. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, with that, 
This has, as always, been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to get the most recent episode and find the uh, link to subscribe in the podcast, you can add little comments and see what weird little music spam bots over in, 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 uh, in uh, SoundCloud really like to hear about infrastructure software. And, uh, you know, my daughter uses that as well, uh, I think, in the future. But you go to SoundCloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations, all one word. You can check out the uh, the episodes there. And as always, you can go to blo- uh, not blogs. You can go to pivotal.io slash podcast to uh, get the full show notes that we've mentioned. And we'll see everyone next time.